0: We are continuing a series called Horizons. And Horizons, the reason that we called it that was each of us have our own horizon when it comes to spiritual things. When we see God, when we read scripture, we have, we all probably see it just a little bit differently. And yet today, as we're jumping into the book of Ephesians, we're going to jump into one of the most rich, and if we're honest, difficult texts in all of scripture. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. We're going to read the entire uh, passage that we're going to teach today. We're going to teach it verse by verse. Some we're going to do a little less work on than others because there's a common theme throughout this. But what I'd like you to do is, if you're able, would you, 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, whoa, that was two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to go through 14. And you may or may not be able to see it up here, but what I would ask you to do is if you can find it in the scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, and once you find it, would you stand with us? Ephesians chapter 1, if you're able, would you stand with us? Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, here's what it says from Paul the Apostle. He loves in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all the things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. So I got to really be honest with you. I love this passage. But this passage also scares me. And I think as we read it, there were some words that jumped out of us, jumped out to us, that that maybe we struggle with. Maybe we either understand or don't understand, we like or we don't like. And last week, I I think Mike did a fantastic job setting up this book, the book of Ephesians, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in in Asia Minor. And this book is about who we are and what we do in Christ. You may not understand how important this passage is to our understanding of God, but you may soon. And as we've started this series called Horizons, we've named it because, as we discuss today, we all come with a different horizon as we look at this passage. So today, as we read, as we see different words, that depending on our experience regarding the church, the Bible, religion, we may already have a horizon that gives us a premeditated aversion or affinity for words like predestination, election, redemption, and inheritance. And I want to encourage you specifically, please hear me, I want you to encourage you to focus on what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. What does it actually say? And not to allow some horizon, some past understanding that has been shifted in one direction or another to take away from what God actually says in his word. See, there are many things that create arguments and divisions in this world, aren't there? Many things. Most of them, I'd contend, is because specifically of identity issues. Because we start to get identity issues from these things, we often get our identities from things that cannot handle the magnitude of who we are. Things like created beings. Things like materialistic type of stuff. So we will allow things like sexuality or our political preference or even our theologies to become the thing that we are identified by. And we will let it make us feel in opposition even with brothers and sisters in Christ. So before we jump into walking through what does predestination mean? What did Paul mean when he said it? I want us to see what Paul said to the church in Corinth before he said one of the most popular marriage verses or popular wedding verses ever in 1 Corinthians 13, here's how he starts that love chapter. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have, what's that word? Love. Love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So don't forget that as we study this, that it is truly about us understanding that God loved us perfectly in spite of us, and we get to love him back. Often we attempt to impress God with our absorbed information because that doesn't require any personal or relational risk. So we start to act as if we know so much and we think that we're more spiritual because of the verses that we can regurgitate. So please know that you can think that you have the best theology ever. You can explain it eloquently and still be without Christ. Because you've made it about what you can do rather than what Christ has already done for you. I saw this tweet, Twitter. I saw this, uh, he's he's a speaker and things like that. He had this tweet and I felt like it applied to this. Bob Goff said it this way, loving people the way Jesus did is great theology. And I couldn't agree more. But I would go a step further. True biblical theology produces love for others rather than someone looking for a fight. Because often when we start to look at different theologies, we start to corner ourselves or isolate ourselves and say, I'm only with these people. And that's off. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Buckle up. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Bless has A few different uh, definitions, but blessed in this context is the word that we get eulogy from. It means to praise or commend. That is the purpose of God's creation, his people, his church. It is to praise him. You know, we just practiced heaven a little bit a few moments ago. And when we bless him, when we bless him, it is through our words and our actions actually lining up together. But when he blesses us... It's about our status. It is about our position that is found in Christ. That is the true blessing. So how much blessing do we have from God in Christ? According to this, all of it. Every spiritual blessing. So let that sink in. If you've come to Christ, if you said yes to Jesus, your status is in Christ Jesus. You receive all the spiritual blessings. He continues, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So now we're getting into a depth of understanding that for some of us may be a little bit harder for us to reconcile. He chose, it says. It's interesting. Because the way many of us live or the way we act is if we chose him, right? Right? Isn't that how we live? Well, we chose him. We start to act, and we never say this out loud, but we start to act as if God's lucky to have us in his entourage. But that isn't biblical. What what actually comes from scripture is a proclamation that God is the one who is active throughout all of our salvation story. All of it. And what I mean is that when you or I think about how we got to where we are, if we're a follower of Jesus, if we're honest, we have to come to the conclusion that at some point God intervened, didn't he? Because for me, personally, and some of you know this and some of you don't, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I shook my fist at him. I wanted nothing to do with him. I was good at being an atheist, yo. I love to argue with people. Some of would be like, God loves you. Shut up. And then I would just argue with them. And it was sport for me. But because God intervened, even though I wanted nothing to do with him, I was a blasphemer. I was an opponent of everything about God as I grew up. That's why I resonate with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy. <laughs> My name. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing to me his service. Though formerly, this is Paul, the apostle, who killed Christians prior to becoming one. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Ooh, I love that word. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood where the mercy came from and who gave it to him. And it wasn't because he earned it, but because God gave salvation to him, not because of what he's done, but because of what Christ has done. And he uses this word insolent. It means to be closed-minded in an argument no matter the facts. You ever been there? I don't care if you're right. I'm still going to argue with you. That was Paul when it came to the Lord. And that was me. I wanted nothing to do with this Jesus that Christians spoke of. And yet God in his mercy, God in his mercy through my kicking and screaming and tantrums being thrown spiritually, chose me to show me grace and grace abundantly in spite of me. And because of his kindness and the grace and mercy and faith that he gave me, I repented, I received And I ran after Jesus like there was no one else worth following. So according to this verse in Ephesians, when did God choose? If you remember, according to this passage, it was before the creation of the world. But how can that be? Did God just see ahead? Or did he actually have authority over what was to come? This is a question I believe that most people struggle with, with our finite understanding of God. So let me ask you a question that if you are a God fearing, Bible believing, Jesus following person, you probably have to say yes. Here's the question Is God sovereign? Yes. Most of us, if we trust Him, would say yes. The problem with that is we don't understand the implications that possess, that We don't understand the implications that possesses when it comes to our theology, our understanding of God and what that being sovereign really means. If God is sovereign, that means in the most simple sense, he is completely in control. Completely. Not just of the gravitational pull of the sun or the beating of your heart right now, but of your past of your present, and of your future. Oh, man, I want that God that isn't surprised by anything. And see, God is not a fortune teller. He doesn't just know the future. He accomplishes the future. Write that down. My God is not just a fortune teller. He doesn't just know the future. He accomplishes the future, and he has the rightful authority, he has the rightful freedom, he has the rightful wisdom and power to bring about all that he intends to happen. That's my God. Now, if all of that is true, if everything is under his control, if everything is under his purposes and nothing is surprising to him, then why is it so impossible to believe that God chooses us to be found in him before the creation of the world? Well, when you say it like that, pastor, I don't know. I'll tell you why we don't want to believe this. I'll give you two reasons. Here's the first reason. We want to have control. Don't we? We want to be able to say that we dictate what God does. Don't we? You don't have to admit it, but I know. And he knows. And the person next to you knows. We want to act as if our will is stronger than God's purposes. That we have a say in who we are and what we do. And so let me remind you what Ephesians is about. It is about who we are and what we do. That's one reason we don't want to believe in his sovereignty, especially in our salvation story. Here's another reason we don't want to believe this. too, because we want to think we play a bigger part in other people's salvation stories as well. Don't we? I've led a lot of people to Jesus, and I'm not saying that to say, hey, look what I've done. No, 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 my job's to equip people to do the same now. But I realized over time that there was no specific method that worked. There was no one-size-fits-all approach. Every, but over time, I noticed more and more that even if I biffed, screwed up the delivery, or even offended the person, or nailed it and said it perfectly, some would come to faith. And some would run farther away. You know what that made me realize over time? God is sovereign even over me. Even over them. Even over their understanding of the good news at the time and place that they will understand it or reject it. Verse 5. In love. Don't miss that. In love. If you underline in your Bible, underline those two words. In love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. There it is. It's out there. There's the word that for some of us make us angry and mad towards people who believe in it. And unfortunately makes others become prideful because they think that they're the only ones who truly know God because they think they understand predestination. Here's what predestination means. It means to predetermine before the happening happens. So what it means. It's to predetermine before the happening happens. So what many people want to do with this idea of predestination is neuter it, don't they? They want to soften it so it becomes more palatable, more bite-sized, so it'll fit better in how we view God, not from the word of God, but from how we want him to be. But it's unfortunately in contrast with the sovereignty. I have a pretty long quote. I've been studying about this for a few weeks. And I had a theology and I still have the same theology. But I read and I studied. Because teaching the church that God's allowed me to be a part of overseeing. I need to make sure I say it biblically, honestly, and in a way that by the spirit of God you could hear it. But here's a quote from R.C. Sproul, a phenomenal theologian. He says it this way. Some describe it in this way, God looks down the tunnel of time from all eternity, observing human responses, and so he knows what choices will be made when people are invited to respond to the gospel of Christ. On the basis of that foreknowledge, foreknew, and on the basis of these unforeseen choices of human beings, God then elects people to be saved. So our salvation, our election, is conditional upon the foreseen choices that we make. But if salvation ultimately rests upon the foreseen responses of fallen human beings to the invitation of the gospel, we might well despair of anyone ever being saved. Because people are dead in sin, who are by nature at enmity with God, who walk in the ways of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 says. They would never make a positive response to the gospel. Consequently, the only one who would occupy heaven would be Christ the Redeemer himself. Christ would be a savior without saving anyone. That is, if this view of man's ability to choose God unaided or choose Christ without the predestinating grace of the Father to make that certain is the case. But in Romans 8.29, where it says that those he foreknew, he also predestined, doesn't that seem to say that predestination is upon the foreknowledge of God? Of course. The answer is yes. It does teach that predestination is based on the foreknowledge of God. But what does the word foreknowledge mean? Does it mean based upon God's knowledge of the future? Meaning God simply looks down the future and looks through the future and sees who will be believe the gospel message and then predestines or elects them see if that were the case it would contradict the verses above from romans and ephesians that make it very clear election is not based on anything man does or will do see that's the great part of the gospel it's not about you the truth is that the word foreknew in romans eight twenty nine is not speaking of god's knowing the future the word foreknowledge is never used in terms of knowing about future events, times or actions anywhere in scripture, but it does describe a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of God whereby God brings the salvation relationship into existence by decreeing it into existence ahead of time. RC Sproul. So let me let me make that cornbread English. You didn't do anything to be saved. God didn't just look to see who would choose Him. He actually gave us the faith to choose Him, and He chose us. So here's the thing: I think for most of us, we've understood why we don't understand why He would predestine us in the first place. But the, sex, the text says it is in love He predestined. It is in love He predestined. Predestination is often looked at as a glass half full perspective. Don't miss this. Predestination is often looked at at glass-half-full perspective. We get angry at God for predestinating anyone to hell, don't we? And misunderstand that no one deserves heaven. Not one person. So if God were being fair, each and every single one of us would spend an eternity without him. Don't miss that. But God decided to step into our history, didn't he? To walk among us. To be tempted like we are tempted. And yet he did not sin. Which means he just didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. Woo. And because of this. Because God himself took on flesh. God decided to intervene in his creation. In his grace. In his mercy. He decided to save any of us by his goodness. By his foreknowledge of knowing you before you were born, he knew you, he knew you beforehand, he knew you intimately. And when the scripture says that he foreknew, that doesn't mean that he looked through the annals of time and saw who would accept him, but he drew those he foreknew and he predestined them into relationship with him. That's what he did. See, we accept Jesus in our pride, but we receive him in humility. Because we start to act as if we had something to do with it. But don't miss what we're predestined for. Because it's easy to get angry at this. This is the biggest mistake. This is the biggest missed opportunity, I think, in theology to, the glor- to glory in. We need to glory in the fact that his predetermining of us was to be adopted into his family. Some of you have been adopted. Some of you have adopted others. And there is a joy that comes from that. And when you've been predetermined, you've been predetermined to be adopted by the king most high. So what does it mean to be adopted by the king? It means you're made right. You are made righteous in the sight of the Lord. That your sin no longer defines you. But Christ Jesus, the king, defines you. And God the Father sees you as a co-heir with Christ, the perfect one. King Jesus King imputes and gives you his righteousness, his right standing before the Father. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. But why? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Why? To illuminate his grace. So do you hear this and think that God was wrong for saving you? For predetermining that you'd have a relationship with the Lord? Putting you in the family that he did so you could know him? Inviting you to a place where the gospel would be preached so you'd hear about it. And he would give you faith to trust him. Is he wrong for doing that? Do you think he should have done it a different way? simply do you think you should have had more to do with your salvation than you do because i got to be honest if you shake your fist at god for the grace that he's given you then you probably never ever received it if i'm being really honest now for some that's a little too clear so let me let me be a little nicer let me say it another way do you think you did anything to be saved you don't have to answer maybe in your small groups but Do you think you did anything to be saved? Most of us would say no. Then, if you did nothing to be saved, who did? Was it random chance? Or maybe, just maybe, God gave you grace? Maybe, just maybe, God gave you faith and removed the veil so you could see who He is? See, I don't want us to take our stand on anything other than the gospel. So, we're not going to say that we're this type of church or this type of church necessarily. This is what I see biblically. People go, you believe in predestination? No, I believe in the Bible. And the Bible talks a lot about it. And the gospel, that Christ did what we couldn't because we wouldn't, and even though he shouldn't, based on our work. And he blew apart the religious expectations that we could work our way to him because he did the work. He did the heavy lifting and worked his way to you and me so that you and me could be set free. Woo, that was like cat in the hat. That was good. All right, Romans eight twenty nine. Here's the rest of what it says. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be, there was a reason, conformed to the image of his son, emphasis mine, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he foreknew, he predestined to justification, to be justified before the Father, to be made right. But here's the crazy thing about justification. It always has sanctification as a part of it. Justification and sanctification. Sanctification is growing more into the likeness of Jesus, to be conformed more into the image of the Son. Justification and sanctification are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. And both are actually evidence for one another. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It says in him, Jesus, we have redemption. The word redemption means to buy back something. The Greek language specifically means to buy back a slave who was put into slavery, was put into bondage. So it is in him that we have redemption. It is through Jesus that we've been bought back at a price, at the cost of a life, the perfect life of God's only son. See, God paid our ransom through Jesus. And through his blood, through his willingness to obey the father perfectly and being a sin offering for us, we can be made right. In accordance with God's grace. Another way to see this is because of God's infinite grace, he has the ability to forgive an unmeasurable amount of sin. You cannot out-sin the cross. God has got grace. But does our God see you as a trophy of grace? You better believe it. And you have been redeemed by Christ. And you must understand that it is out of his riches of grace that you've been redeemed. And it is glorifying to God to save a sinner like you and I. Verse 8. He lavished on us with all the wisdom and understanding. I love this word lavish. It means to give without care of expense. I love this word. He gave without care of expense. And then verse 9. He said he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. But God's will is a mystery. But the more we trust him, the more that we read this, the more that we apply this to our lives, the more we think biblically, and his will doesn't seem as foreign and veiled as we get to know him through his word. Verse 10. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Do you know there's a time that's coming that there will be no more pain? There will be a time when we are redeemed, not because of what we've done, but because of God's holy and perfect plan. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined, predetermined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In him we were chosen. And too often, if we're honest, people take being chosen as being special because of something that we've done, which is not the case biblically. But there is also a response to God choosing and predetermining that is in conflict with the gospel. Some of us think we don't need to share with others about the gospel. Why? Because if they're predestined or not predestined, what's the point? The point is that you'd be faithful, church. That you would actually give to others what God has given you, which is grace. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I don't want to be a part of the frozen chosen who, who think that it's okay to not do what God asks. See, if you're predestined, you will live out your faith. If you are predestined, you will live out your faith. And isn't there a tension Like, there's a rope, okay, and you have a rope, and as you have this rope, if you pull it as hard as you can, what happens? It snaps. Well, maybe not me, I'm not that strong, but like, if someone pulled it really hard, it would snap. If you hold it like this, really close to each other, but there's absolutely no tension, it's limp, it's worthless. But there's something about being in the tension. Did God predestine, biblically? Yes. Does God give man a choice, biblically? Yes. There's a tension. Doesn't man have the opportunity to exercise his will? Yes. So how can both be true? Don't they contradict? No. Because a contradiction is only when there is no possible explanation for what seems like two opposing scenarios. Could God in his infinite grace and mercy and wisdom predetermine yours and my salvation? Yes. And can God also give us the opportunity to choose him? Yes. I believe so, and yet we all get up in arms because we want to treat this as God being a puppet master. Hear me. My Lord, my God, not a puppet master. He's a loving Father that knows what we need, and he is willing to let us skin our knees sometimes and make mistakes so that we don't get dead. You ever make a choice that didn't seem like a good choice, and you skinned your knee, and it ended up being pretty bad, and yet God used it for his glory? It's like he knows more about us than we do. And he even gives us the faith to choose him. Verse 12. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be, there it is again, for the praise of his glory. I think we're far often too consumed with how we think God should do things and miss out on how and what he does ultimately brings glory and praise to his name. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. There is not a more important evidence and moment than when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Comforter, the Counselor, enters into your life and makes you born again. He makes you a new creation he starts the process of making you more like Jesus but for many of us we live apart from the holy spirit don't we in how we talk and how we think and what we do and yet this says that you were marked in him you were made alive in Christ when you heard the message and you responded with belief with faith Being in Christ means you are now sealed in him. You're his. And God the Holy Spirit is our seal, our evidence, and our stamp that says we are found in Christ. We are sealed so that we can not leak or lose what God has predetermined. If you're sealed, nothing's coming out. And some of us live in this tension of believing God loves us and he saves us and it was a gift, but that he'll take it back if we don't do what we think he wants us to do and let me just be real this is going to hurt a little if you decide to live in liberty if you think it's okay because you were saved by him so you act as if you have a black card spiritually and an unlimited budget to sin i'd contend that you never met him and you were never sealed but there's a freedom in knowing god knowing god's will for you to be adopted that you don't lose that designation because you fail your heavenly father. My kids will fail me. I failed my parents, and yet I never stopped being their son, my kids never stop being my kids, and we never stop being his. Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Those of you who are found in Christ are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Your election, your redemption, you being on a trajectory towards your inheritance is to the praise of his glory. And here's the thing, it's not about you, it's about him, even your salvation. So I ask this question a lot, I usually don't preach it, but as I look at the text, I think it actually answers it. When does someone get saved? When does someone receive salvation? I actually think there are three answers that are correct and applicable. Let me show them to you. Past, present, future. Before the foundation of the earth, God knew you. Election. God predetermined that you'd be adopted. Present. He redeems you. And when he redeems you, he redeems you through grace and your response by faith and future. Your inheritance Knowing because you were sealed by him, it was a deposit for your future inheritance. It was the down payment of what was to come. Again, I hope you can exist and thrive in this tension, but also see the beauty of what God is saying through Paul in this passage. Here's what this understanding of God's sovereignty and predetermination do for me. It's like a warm blanket. It makes me feel so much better about my God because it is a phenomenal reminder that He is completely in control and I am His and He is mine. But some of us, if we're honest, we hear this and we become an insolent opponent. I don't care what it says, I don't want it to be like that. I don't believe in that. But there is nothing that changes my status. Am I right standing before the Father in his sight because of what Christ has done, because it was enough? And I have a future inheritance to look forward to in an eternity with Lord forever and ever. Amen. God created the tension, church. And he's okay with it. And I believe you should be too. Let me close with this before we receive the offering and continue to worship in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16 we're going to teach on this in a few weeks. Paul says this as a as a prayer to the church. He says, "I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide And how deep and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, even the stuff you don't understand, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Church of the Valley, that's my prayer for us. That we wouldn't take a stance or a stand on anything that's not the gospel. But that we would understand that God loves us perfectly in spite of us. And he did for us what we could not do. For ourselves, And I hope that you would live in the tension of knowing that he can predetermine and he can still give you a will to want to choose him. Let's pray. Father, I, I love you. That's really all I can say to you, God. I don't have any good works to really bring to you that aren't led by you. I don't have any faith that wasn't given to me by you. I bring nothing to the table, and yet you decided to save a sinner like me. God, there are men and women in this room that are in the exact same spot that have been saved by you, not because of what they've done, but because of how glorious and rich and amazing your mercy and grace is. And so, God, would we be men and women that live forgiven, live redeemed, live excited for the fact that we are yours and you are God, as we receive the offering today, God, I pray that you would use it. I pray that those who came prepared to give would give to Church of the Valley as a resource of your kingdom. That they would come and drop off their offering in these plates, knowing that it is not a time to show off for them, but it's a time to show off the fact that you are leading us to live by faith. God, I pray that you'd make much of yourself through this body of believers. And that we'd know you a little bit better today. We'd love you a little bit more today. And we serve you with our whole hearts today. We love you, Jesus. In your beautiful name. Amen.